The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As today we enter into the third week of the Advent season, this week, which you heard just a moment ago, bears the theme of joy. And so, of course, with this being the joy week of Advent, we would arrive at the final beatitude. We've been going through those in our series into the Sermon on the Mount thus far. And so we arrive at the final one, which is about persecution. Those two things just go together, don't they? Joy, persecution, cookies and milk kind of together pairing. We just think of them in our minds. Jesus seems to think they go together. Because if you look right there, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, he actually slams them right next to one another. He says, in response to persecution, we should do what? Rejoice and be glad. Persecution and joy. Jesus says they're joined. This morning, I just want to ask, how can that be true? Like in both the Beatitudes and in in our lives, how, how can it be a reality that persecution and joy are joined? Let's take those questions one at a time. Those are our big picture questions for the morning. It's a question number one. Let's ask it about the Beatitudes first. How can it be a reality that persecution and joy are joined in the Beatitudes? I'm going to give you the answer in the form of a fun uh, three-word phrase, eschatological wisdom literature. You can all feel free to drop that at your Christmas parties this week, just in random conversation. Yes, I was reading some eschatological wisdom literature. I don't know why. Apparently I'm smoking a pipe as I say that. Just reading some eschatological wisdom literature. But seriously, that's the summary answer to our first question. How can it be a reality that persecution and joy are joined in the Beatitudes? It's because the Beatitudes are eschatological wisdom literature. What does that mean? Let's break that phrase down one word at a time in reverse order. Literature. I'm hoping I don't have to really explain that one. Uh, The Beatitudes, the entire Sermon on the Mount, have come to us in written form as literature. The second word in our phrase helps us to get more specific about the kind of literature we're dealing with. Wisdom. Wisdom literature. The Sermon on the Mount has a, a lot of features of wisdom literature it's not the only way you can categorize it but it is one way it has a lot of features of wisdom literature now that's a category that you are probably at least somewhat familiar with in the context of your bible what if you're thinking about the bible what would you identify as wisdom literature what comes to mind proverbs yeah that's the first and easiest one absolutely anything else ecclesiastes comes to mind yeah a lot of the books that are sitting right there around Proverbs, so Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms might even come to mind because that is a kind of psalm. We do encounter wisdom psalms. You remember through our series in the Psalter, the first psalm, Psalm 1, is like a wisdom psalm. And we know that because wisdom literature, it, it takes aim at how we live. Wisdom literature aims to reveal how we live wisely in the world in accordance with God's Word. And it aims to warn us against living foolishly. Wisdom literature, in other words, is constantly presenting us with two ways to live. 
wisely or foolishly? Does that not make you think of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. There's a wise way to live. It's in accordance with the word of God. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. There's a foolish way to live. This is what wisdom literature does presents us with two ways to live and then it calls us beckons us to live wisely in the way that leads to true life in the way that leads to true joy even when it doesn't look like it on the surface does not look like the the wicked are just having the time of their life but yet someone says in the end they're like chaff blows away those who live in accordance with the word of god they do bear fruit in due season Wisdom literature counsels us to live wisely the way of true life, the way of true joy, even when it doesn't look like it on the surface of things. Is that not what we've seen the Beatitudes do? They call us to live in a way that leads to true life in Christ, true joy in Jesus, even if it doesn't look like it on the surface. This this is what the entire Sermon on the Mount will do. To the point that when we get to the end, Jesus is going to give us multiple pictures of two ways to live. He's going to say you can take the wide road that leads to destruction. You can take the narrow road that leads to life. You can follow false teachers who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. You can follow true teachers. You can build your life foolishly like a foolish man who builds his house upon shifting sand. Or you can build your life on me, on Christ And you'll be like a wise person who builds their house on a rock, on a firm foundation. Two ways to live. Sermon on the Mount presents itself as wisdom literature, calling us away from the foolish life that the world promises will lead to joy and calling us to true life in Christ, true joy in Jesus. That's precisely what the Beatitudes do. Their wisdom literature showing us Life of true joy is found in Jesus even when it doesn't look like it. That's because the Beatitudes are also eschatological. That's the final word of our phrase, eschatological wisdom literature. I did not say scatological. I'm not talking about poop. All right? Eschatological comes from the Greek word eschatos, which simply just means last or end. In other words eschatological literature has to do with the last things has to do with the end the ultimate end the second coming of christ the easiest thing to point to is what we went through in 2020 revelation we walked through that book that book is eschatological literature in reality the book of revelation i hope you're able to see is eschatological wisdom literature If we put all that together, what that simply means is it aims to reveal how we should live now, the wise way to live now, in light of how things will end. Is that not what the Beatitudes aim to do? Live 
poor in spirit, which we've seen means wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, no matter the cost. Even if on the surface, it doesn't look like that's a life of true joy right now. Even if it leads to mourning, like we're told in the second beatitude. It is ultimately the wise life of true joy. Because look at the end. In the end, those who are wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even if it leads to mourning now, theirs is ultimate comfort eschatological wisdom literature reveals the wise life of true joy in light of the ultimate end this is this is like what i do with my kids with regards to junk food like especially this time of year when junk food is like prevalent and always present and and that's all they want to eat and consume but we all know how that ends uh, that does have to do with uh, scatological things. Um, it, it ends with stomach. That, that's my one poop joke. That's, that's it. Got it. All right. Um, it does end with an upset stomach. And all that we know that a true stomach, true joy, involves fruits and vegetables. I'm going to write that down and give it to my kids. That's eschatological wisdom literature. Live wisely now, in light of how this will end. I I hope you're beginning to see how it can be a reality that persecution and joy are joined in the Beatitudes. It's because the Beatitudes are saying that a life of wholehearted devotion to Christ, it may indeed mean persecution. But when seen in light of the ultimate end, it is the wise life of true joy. Think of it Think of it like a sunrise. Well, the sunrise, you can already begin to see before the sun ever even breaks the horizon, right? The future coming sun helps you see reality rightly in the present. The future coming Christ, second coming, his second advent, it sheds light and helps us see the present rightly right now even before his second coming breaks the horizon helps us see our present circumstances even if those involve persecution it helps us see them rightly how do we get the light of the second coming of christ to shine into our lives it comes into our lives through eschatological wisdom literature the beatitudes shine light into our lives the light of the second coming of christ they show us the victorious end empowering us to to rejoice even amidst present persecution persecution and joy are joined in the beatitudes because this is eschatological wisdom literature and you may be like great awesome i understand the argument jonathan I get the logic of it, but how does that actually take effect in my life? Like, like it's great that persecution and joy are joined in the Beatitudes, but how are they going to be joined on my Monday? Like when I'm ridiculed at work. I'm slandered by my family. When I'm aligned, when I'm lied about, or God forbid, I actually experience physical injury or economic oppression because of my faith in Christ. How's joy going to be a reality for me then? Shades, this takes us to our second big picture question. Question number two. How can it be a reality 
that persecution and joy are joined in our lives? How can it be a reality that persecution and joy are joined in our lives? In other words, how does what we've seen about eschatological wisdom literature, how does that move from like theological theory down into my everyday reality? To see the answer, we've got to dig into the details of the final beatitude. Read it with me. Matthew 5 and verse 10. Blessed, or as we've been translating it throughout this series, makarios, we've been translating it as truly joyful. Truly joyful are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the eighth and final beatitude. It causes me to ask three questions. Those three questions are going to help us answer our our big question number two. They're going to help us see how persecution and joy can actually be joined in the reality of our lives. So here's my three like sub questions for those of you who like outlines. My three questions are this. First, what is persecution? We're going to talk about this. We got to define it. Do any of us even face this? What is persecution? Second, why are we persecuted? What brings it on? And third, how can there be joy amidst persecution? What is persecution? Why are we persecuted? And how can there be joy amidst persecution? Let's take those one at a time. First, what is persecution? It seems like an easy question to answer, right? Most of us would say, well, persecution is physical harm done to someone because of who they are or what they believe. And therefore, in our context, we would say as Christians in America who rarely, if ever, face physical consequences for our faith, we don't really think that persecution is something that we face at all. We tend, when we talk about this, we think only of our brothers and sisters around the world who face intense physical persecution. And let me be clear, it is true It is true that our brothers and sisters deal with persecution that I've never experienced, and I think that we could scarcely imagine. Just just a few weeks ago, uh, I was on the phone uh, with a friend of mine who's a missionary in Asia, and the the missionary organization that he works for is under investigation for evangelism. And there's the threat of jail time and all of those kinds of things, and, and he, he had me download this texting app that's encrypted and your communication disappears after a certain amount of time. It felt like something straight out of like a James Bond film, and we're texting back and forth, and he's basically asking me for counsel. Do I stay and risk jail, or do I get out? Shades, in 20 years of ministry, I don't have many firsts left. That was a first um, I should let you know that he is fine, he's okay, he's safe, and he is out. But persecution like that, my point is persecution like that is something that I've never faced, and I don't, with everything I've got to say this morning, I don't want to downplay the difficulties known by our brothers and sisters around the world. I don't want to downplay that at all. But, at the same time, time i don't want to downplay the opposition that i know many of you have faced for your faith i don't want to downplay 
the hurts that you have felt, the wounds that you have received, shades. Often when we talk about persecution, we only talk about it in the context of physical persecution overseas, and we use that to downplay the pain that we may experience because of our faith. And in doing so, we are depriving ourselves of the very comfort that Christ offers us in His Word. All those persecution pastors, they just don't have anything to do with me. So the comfort offered there has nothing to do with me. The empowerment offered there has nothing to do with me. And I want to say, oh yes, it does. Don't downplay your pain by playing a comparison game. That's not helpful for anybody. Comparing pain is pointless. Like, if you have a broken leg and I have a sprained ankle, like your pain may be greater, but that doesn't make my ankle feel any better. My pain is still real. Don't compare pain. Don't compare persecution, which is faced by all believers. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all, no exceptions, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You, you desire to follow Christ, you proactively bring your life into alignment with the will of Jesus and the word of Jesus, you will face persecution. Maybe not physically, but perhaps, perhaps economically. That's a huge category. We saw that all throughout the book of Revelation. That's a, that's a huge biblical category of persecution in Scripture. When because of your faith, you're put under economic pressure to compromise. Compromise, or, or we're going to boycott your business. Compromise, or we're going to pass over you for the promotion. Compromise, or, or you'll be fired. Persecution takes even more forms than this, than economic oppression. We can see that through the very words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is, this is right on the heels of the final beatitude where Jesus takes that final beatitude and He expounds upon it. He, he gives it more detail to, to show us more of what He means in talking about the kinds of persecution His disciples will face. And... He expounds on it to show us more of what the entire list of the Beatitudes is about. Remember, we, we talked about this. When we first began walking through the Beatitudes, we talked about how ancient lists often get a bonus element at the end. You can tell the list is completed by Beatitude number 8 because Beatitude 1 and Beatitude 8 parallel each other even with their promise. Both of them have the same promise to bookend this list. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we get this bonus item. An ancient list would often give a bonus item in order to expound upon the main theme of the entire list. It's like, see all of it through this. And this entire list we have seen is about wholehearted devotion to Christ no matter the cost. So naturally, it ends with the greatest cost. Facing persecution. And so Jesus fleshes that out a little bit more for us. Look at verse 11. Truly joyful are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. When others revile you, when others falsely accuse you, they lie about you. They slander you. Jesus highlights right here verbal persecution. We downplay it. Even if you're not a Christian, just in our culture in general, 
we downplay the damage that words can do. I bet if you're like me, kid who grew up in the 80s and 90s, you learned the same thing I did on the school bus. It's the king of all responses to every insult that you ever got flung your way. Sticks and stones, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. What is true is that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words always hurt more deeply. They always hurt more deeply. Shades, don't downplay the pain of verbal persecution or you'll miss out on the comfort of Christ and the call of Christ. You'll miss out on the comfort Christ has for you as you read passages about persecution. You say, oh, that's just about physical persecution. You'll skip right over all of the promises, all of the encouragement, all of the comfort that is directed at you. And you'll miss not just the comfort of Christ, you'll miss the call of Christ. We see the call right here. He has called us amidst persecution to rejoice. Don't dismiss that and think that that's a miracle that merely happens when you're sitting in a jail cell somewhere. But when I face verbal insults, I can insult right back. When I have rage expressed against me, I can rage right back along with my culture. When that insult is tweeted right at me, I can at that thing right back. The call on all of us amidst every kind of persecution, including verbal, is to rejoice and be glad. Don't downplay verbal persecution. Jesus doesn't. He highlights it right here. He highlights it because this is where persecution begins. Long before it ever gets physical, persecution starts out verbal. And that doesn't make it any less painful. In, um, in January of this year, uh, I began seeing a counselor. Y'all are aware of this. We've talked about this. I began seeing a counselor. And I've been seeing him all year. And over the course of the year, I've grown and trust more and more. And as I did, I began to share things with him that I have never shared with anyone, Holly included. Things that for whatever reason have been so difficult to, to voice. And one of the first things I shared with him was an experience I had in fifth grade. It was the first time I was ever made fun of for my faith. And I could, I could relay the details of that story to you and we could really dismiss it as, oh, that's just kids being kids. But why? Why had that pain pierced my heart so deeply? I'd never been able to talk about it with anybody, even my wife. Shade's words are painful, especially when they cut at the core of who you are. And for a Christian, especially painful when they cut at the core of who you are in Christ. And Jesus says, all of my followers will know this pain. 1 Peter 3.16 says that the followers of Jesus will be slandered. And Peter calls that suffering. He goes on in chapter 4 to speak about being maligned and insulted. And he calls that sharing in the sufferings of Christ. When we ask what persecution is, I believe the New Testament answers, 
any painful opposition we experience because of our faith. Any painful opposition we experience because of our faith. And that last phrase is key. Because of our faith. That actually leads us to our second question. Our second sub-question right here. We know what persecution is. Any painful opposition we experience because of our faith. Our second question is why are we persecuted? Why are we persecuted? And Scripture actually offers many answers, but let's look right here again at Matthew 5 and verse 10. Look at our beatitude. Truly joyful are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just for any reason. Chase, listen, there, there, are, there are many Christians who experience all kinds of opposition not because they believe in Jesus, but just because they're jerks. That's not what Jesus is talking about right here. He's saying, if you're meek, gentle, merciful, forgiving, peacemaking, and you still experience opposition because you seek to live a life devoted to Jesus, that's persecution. It's opposition that comes your way for righteousness' sake. Why are we persecuted? Because we're seeking to live a righteous life, which is a life of wholehearted devotion to Christ. I know that's what it is because of verse 11. Verse 11 parallels verse 10. Look at verse 11. Truly joyful are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When they persecute you for righteousness' sake, verse 10 says. And then verse 11, on my account. For righteousness' sake, on my account. They're parallel. They're the same thing. Living a righteous life is living one wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. And that's what brings about persecution. Again, Peter writes a lot about this in his first epistle. 1 Peter 4 and verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's saying if you suffer because of your own sin or your own idiocy, you should be ashamed of that. Like if it's because you're actually out there doing things, they're sinful, or I love the fact that he includes alongside of murder, meddling. Like if you're a meddling jerk, then the opposition you experience is not persecution, and you should be ashamed of that, he says. But, he says, if you suffer because you're a Christian, because you bear the name of Christ, and you follow Him, then don't feel an ounce of shame about that. Well, feel an ounce of guilt. Glorify God that you were counted worthy to suffer for His name. We don't think about persecution that way. It's how the disciples talked about it in Acts chapter 5. They praised and rejoiced that they were counted worthy to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. If Jesus was not better than the cross, neither are we. No servant is greater than their master. And it is an honor to suffer for the name of of Jesus Christ. That's the way I would talk about suffering for my wife and kids. I would wear it like a badge of honor to take a bullet for any of them. It's an honor to suffer for Christ's name. Shades. If you suffer, Peter's saying, because you're a jerk, that's not persecution. If 
you suffer because of Jesus. That is. Shades, there, there is a lot. There is a lot of anger and rebuke and harsh words aimed at Christians in our context right now. And let's be honest. Much of it, if not most of it, is well-deserved. Because it is not coming our way because we follow Jesus. It is coming our way because we failed to. We cannot claim that this final beatitude is true of us if none of the others are. It comes at the end for a reason. If we aren't poor in spirit, meek, merciful, peacemakers, then we cannot claim that any of the opposition we face is actually persecution. Persecution is only, in the context of Christianity, it is only persecution when it is for righteousness' sake. When it comes because we follow Christ. And it will. You follow Christ, it will come. Even in our context. Orthodox Christianity in our context, I don't know if you've noticed, it's losing popularity. Cultural Christianity is dying. And that's a good thing because cultural Christianity never saved anybody. Cultural Christianity is when it's just, it's to your advantage culturally to associate with the name of Jesus. It's not to your advantage. That's not a bad thing. That we should moan, bemoan, or lament. Orthodox Christianity is out of step with our culture. That is the reason that it is opposed. Persecution, verbal or otherwise, will come. And when it does, we shouldn't be surprised. We are. Christians all over the place are like, why does the culture respond to us negatively? Y'all, the world crucified the guy we worship. You follow him. He told us quite clearly it means taking up a cross daily. We shouldn't be surprised and we should be prepared and ready to respond. And most people have a very wrong idea of what that means. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter's like, y'all, Jesus told us. He told us. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. No, here's how you're to respond. But rejoice. Not picket, protest, and whine, and complain, and petition, and phone the senator. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, notice where he goes to verbal persecution. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, makarios, truly joyful. 
When persecution comes, Peter says, don't be surprised. Be ready to respond. And not with rage, not with slander, not with insults, not with the very weapons that have wounded us. No, the followers of Jesus respond with joy. That's what Peter said. Rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are truly joyful. Peter says that. Jesus says that. Look down at it. Matthew 5 and verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. That's how we respond. I just got one more question. How? How? That's our third, final sub-question right here. We know what persecution is. We know why we are persecuted. Third, how can there be joy amidst persecution? How are we supposed to, to do this? Read the entirety of verse 12 with me. It says, when we are persecuted on Jesus' account, he says, rejoice and be glad for Gotta love a good grounding clause. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How can there be joy amidst persecution? Jesus gives us two answers. One looking forward and one that looks back. Looking forward, he says, you can rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven here's what he doesn't mean he doesn't mean that your suffering is earning like a one-for-one reward kind of system here like you play the token game of suffering you got some tickets and you get to trade it in for some rewards at the redemption counter it's just not what he's talking about like you took an insult and so you got uh, an insult merit badge in heaven or, or you were slandered, so you get the slander pin. No. When Jesus says your reward is great, polis, word that means many, much, more, abundant. When he says your reward is great, abundant, overflowing in heaven, what he means is that your reward surpasses It's not equal to, surpasses all the suffering you've ever experienced. To the degree, comparison is impossible. Paul says that, Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's like, everything I've ever suffered, I can't even set that on a scale next to the glory that's coming. Even if he tries, he tries in 2 Corinthians 4, and he ends up calling his suffering light and momentary. He says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison you can't compare this if a try then this is light and momentary because that weighs so much and it lasts forever this is why jesus calls our reward in heaven great because it outweighs every pound of persecution i know that because throughout the beatitudes he's been telling us precisely what this great reward is look back Look back at all the promises that have come through the Beatitudes. And you will see the great reward. It's seeing His face. 
It's receiving His mercy as we are called His very own children, as we are embraced by His comfort, as we enjoy an eternal inheritance and experience full and final satisfaction in Him. He's the reward. We read that earlier, 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When He comes, we... We are empowered to rejoice now, even amidst persecution, because like like a runner smiling through the the pain as they sprint to the finish line, they've got their mind focused on the joy of the prize at the end. And notice, notice I said that runner smiles through the pain. The joy and the pain are simultaneous. The joy and the persecution are joined. As I talk about us being able to be empowered to have joy amidst persecution, I am not saying that the pain that persecution brings into our lives, we just pretend like that doesn't exist and we just put on a slap happy smile for Jesus. Paul says we are a people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are a people who grieve through pain, suffering, and death, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Grief and hope, sorrow, rejoicing, pain, suffering, persecution, joy, these things are joined. Jesus empowers joy amidst persecution by getting us to look forward. And, and by getting us to look back. Looking back, he says, you can rejoice and be glad for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're not alone even when you most feel like it. Even when it feels like every Christian friend you have is walking away from the faith and believers are dropping like flies all around you and you feel like you're the only one left. You're not alone. You can look back and see a host, a host of faithful witnesses who have gone before and finished well, even when it meant going through hell on earth. Look back, Shade. Look back at Acts 5. The disciples who rejoiced and couldn't believe they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Look back. Look back to Hebrews 10. To those believers who had their property plundered, financially oppressed, economically cheated. Look back to Hebrews 11 at those who were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. Look back. Look back on the saints of history. Saints like Perpetua and Felicity who were beheaded for their devotion to Christ. Or or look back at Roland Taylor, Bishop Ridley, John Bradford who kissed the stakes that they were to be burned at. Look back at Obadiah Holmes who after having his back beaten to a bloody pulp turns around and says to his tormentors, you have struck me with roses. We are surrounded, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Look back, Shades, and see if the Spirit doesn't still speak through them to supply you with strength, with joy in Jesus, even amidst persecution. Shades, how can there be joy amidst persecution? Look back at the faithfulness of those who've gone before. 
and look forward in faith to your great reward. This is what the season of Advent itself actually calls us to do. Advent is a season of looking back at God's faithfulness. He promised to send a Savior, and He did. And that stirs us up to look forward in faith. He's promised to send Christ again, and He will. Advent is a season of looking back and looking forward so that we'll be provided with power in the present. My kids do this every Advent. Every Advent, my kids look back and they look forward. They look back. They love to look through old pictures of Christmas. It gets them excited. And then they love to look forward. As soon as there's packages under that tree, they're looking forward to the day they get to open them. They're trying to sneak up under there and do what they're not supposed to do, grab them, feel them, figure out whose is whose. We do a secretive numbering system and it changes every year and so nobody knows what belongs to who. But they love to try to figure it out. Shake these things. Make guesses. They're looking back and looking forward. All of that is stirring up joy in the present. Shades. This Advent, let's do the same. Let's look back. We do that by looking into this word. Let's look back into this word. Look back at our family photos of faithful saints of the past who finished well. And let's look forward. You do that through this word. Let's look forward to the package that's yet to be unwrapped, to the second advent of Christ. We can talk about this all we want to, but the power will only be provided when you actually do it, Shades. Set your mind on these things. Meditate on these things. Pick up this word at like, like the package at Christmas and shake it. Pick up this word, shake it, and feel the reality that, that we have a faithful family and a faithful God who is guaranteed a future. Shake this thing, read it, and let it stir up faith in the present provide power provide joy in the present in jesus no matter what we face even if that's persecution shades do you see how it can be a reality that persecution and joy are joined in our lives it's because they are both joined to jesus Persecution is opposition that comes because of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. It's inevitable. It's joined to Jesus. You grab on to Jesus, persecution comes. He said it himself in John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Persecution is joined to Jesus, but so is joy. Because Jesus is our joy. Looking back at the saints of old will show us that's true. Looking forward, we see He's coming to make all things new. He is our joy. So, this Advent, weary saints. We sing about that, don't we? In this season, the weary world, we sing that the weary world rejoices. Weary saints, call you like that song, to rejoice. Because this season reminds us that yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See your life in the light of that new and glorious morn that's coming one day. The second coming of Christ, the second advent. See your life in light of that and believe. Truly joyful are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom.